Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 59. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Simon Evans. He's the star of the BBC's Live at the Apollo and Channel 4's Stand Up for the Week. Simon presents the BBC radio series, Simon Evans Goes to Market, a comedy show which tackles economic subjects in a uniquely informative and entertaining way. It's now in its fifth series. He's also provided material for the top BBC comedy series, Not Going Out. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Well, here being my own lounge, but yes. <laughs> yes well, it's it, great might be, have... it might be quite a nice lounge, Simon. I mean, don't do yourself down. Funnily enough, we were having exactly that conversation uh, just before we rang as to whether or not it was a lice lounge. Because yesterday I uh, I went to a very a friend's house who's recently had his whole house and and back garden done up and and he's got a pool and all the rest of it. And I was expressing a certain amount of dissatisfaction with our lounge <laughs> as a result. Uh, but uh, my wife insisted it is a nice lounge, so we'll, I'll go with that. Where exactly is your nice lounge? You grew up in Luton, didn't you? And you've moved... No, didn't really grow up. No, no? Oh, gosh, that's very that's raw Wikipedia data. It, it is, yeah. Let's yeah. get the, let's get the real. Let's get it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Born in Luton, but that was because we lived in Dunstable at the time. So that was the local uh, hospital. Dunstable was a new town then in the 1960s. And uh, we lived there until I was about four, four and a half. We moved to, well, I mean, I remember watching the moon landing in Dunstable. That was in July 1969. So um, we then moved to St Albans. And that's where I grew up, really. We stayed in one house in Woodland Drive in St Albans Lovely. until I was at university. My parents moved while I was at university in that traditional kind of sneak off kind of thing and hope he doesn't follow us kind of way. And, um, and I now live in Hove. My friend uh, Paul, with the nice house and the swimming pool, lives in a little village called Iford, which is in the sort of countryside in the Downs, just below Lewis, which is much more like it, really, if I'm honest. But we're in Hove for practical reasons. Very nice, very nice. So you, you've got a fast link into London when you go to your comedy shows and and uh, and the theatre, etc. The bullet train that Southern run from Hove to London, absolutely, yes. It's sort of levitates. <laughs> more, more than more than 30 miles an hour perhaps uh, and and you know you can lie at a, a table you can lie a pencil on its side and and it and it doesn't shatter <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it, it does grow slightly blunter over the course of the journey due to a rope but that's about the only significant change yeah brilliant no, it's all right i mean a couple of years ago, Southern got a reputation, deservedly, for being ludicrously unreliable because they were having a terrible uh, ongoing dispute with Aslef, I think it was. But um, but now it's just run-of-the-mill, tiresome, you know, trains don't work anywhere, really, do they? So, uh, you know, so... I hear, I hear all these words, and they start triggering me now. So I hear Aslef, and all I can think of is it's an anagram for total and complete bastard. Yeah, they have... They've made my life difficult. I, the thing is, when you're, in, when you're a comedian... You're, um, you have no real understanding of what unionization might amount to or how it might change your, your world. But uh, we're discussing this on a, on a documentary I'm going to be making for Radio 4 soon, whether or not um, you know, there is a degree of hypocrisy in comedians all being left-wing and yet having you know, zero interest in unionizing or trying to find any, establish any sort of basic pay rates or 
you know, introducing any sort of working practices that would uh, that would bring equality about. But um, I, I mean, I am tempted to blame Aslef for their slightly uh, luddite approach to driverless trains, guardless trains you know, cameras and, and digital uh, equipment now that's able to monitor, make sure that nobody's got their head stuck through the door before you close and that sort of thing. But um, I suppose they are just doing, you know, they're just desperately trying to slow down the, the, the speed to which we are all plummeting towards an utterly meaningless AI-driven existence where none of us have jobs. We're all living on UBI, you know, just for the sort of amusement of the toffs. So uh, in a way, I kind of think uh, it's not quite as straightforward as I would like to believe. But every time, of course, I'm actually late for a meeting, that all evaporates very quickly. We've plunged straight into politics. Um, how would you describe yours, Simon? Because just for the benefit of, of Listeners, I first had the pleasure of meeting you in the flesh last year at the Edinburgh Fringe, and it was at the the sort of relaunch or the launch of the Adam Smith House and Marion Somerset Web of Money Week okay. had a had a little uh, sort of a I think it was like three or four days of sort of discussions about Adam Smith and his economics. And yeah. I think originally you were due to be on the panel, and then somebody, and it might possibly be me, bounced you off. Unfortunately, so you had to uh-huh. sit in the audience. <laughs> we, you were on the panel that day. I was in the audience for you. I couldn't remember. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I did about three of them where I sat on the panel anyway. And I think she did have a surprisingly large number of willing participants. I think she tried to, I think she was definitely anxious that she wouldn't get anyone. And in reality, she had some star players. They had uh, Lamont was on there that day. Yeah, I, I, got to, I got to sit next to Lamont. And you yeah, didn't, I was, Tim. I, was, it was, it, I mean, I have two claims to fame. One was <laughs> sitting next to Norman Lamont at that Adam Smith um, gig last year in, in the Edinburgh Fringe. The other was standing next to Tony Iommi, um, bass player of Black Sabbath. At the, guitarist. The Dove ha- yeah, the guitarist of Black Sabbath at the Dove House Parade video shop in Solihull in the early 1980s. Fantastic. Beat, beat, beat that, you guys. There's something quite heartbreaking about him being attached to such a sort of outmoded form of media, though I suppose in the in the 80s, it was probably, there was no sense of that at all. That was actually the coming thing, was it? The VHS rental opportunities. Exactly. I mean, that was, I mean, that, that yeah. was when I first got a burning sense of resentment about the, the speed with which technology has become obsolete. Because of course, you spend all your money on video, VHS, and then, then sort of CDs and DVDs come along. And then... And I became such a junkie to all that. I bought, I invested in not one, but uh, I had a, a three mini disc players, which I constantly upgraded, you know, for like little extra features that you could get. And I had a an actual mini disc deck, you know, like a CD deck, like a hi-fi separates deck just for mini discs. Um, which, you know, was supposed to be for the sort of recording purposes. And, and that whole mini disc, uh, phenomenal lasted for about two years, I think. And I managed yeah. to sort of invest. Oh, God, it makes me weak. But I just, you know, you, you, we're all slaves to this kind of nonsense, aren't we? Just wanting desperately. I think at, at some point, you know, they say as your sex drive weakens as you get older, various people are credited, like Socrates or whatever, are credited with saying it's like being unchained from a lunatic. You know, it's not something he regrets, his loss of sex drive. It, it, it's It's like... You spend your. I feel that about sort of the determination to keep up with technology. That is like being chained to a lunatic, and and gradually it just weakens, and I'm no longer quite enthralled to it now. I mean, occasionally pick up a copy of uh, you know what Hi-Fi or something, and go, oh, those look nice, you know. But there's no interest in what what any of it means. I think your ears go slightly. That might be partly. <laughs> you just go. 
<laughs> the difference is is now no longer within the range of what my ears can detect. I think but, boy, uh, George, boy George said once that he'd rather have a cup of tea than sex, and somebody else said well, it doesn't have to make your willy sore. <laughs> very good very that's good. an unpleasant pitch. i'm sitting here with a yeah. cup of tea on my lap yeah right i do now. i do, do apologize it's early on a sunday morning as well simon how did you get into comedy what was your what was your journey into it and then obviously into economics with your series simon evan goes to market well comedy was a, a sort of um uh, almost like a default option that I found myself doing without any real determination to to have, to have done so. I, I was um, I, I thought I was going to be a journalist. That was that was roughly my plan. It, shortly after leaving university, I studied law at university, but I knew fairly soon that there was too much work and rigor involved in 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 the law. I wanted to be a barrister, and I just realised there was just too much reading. And unfortunately, to this day, I still have a very unfortunate habit of just feeling drowsy after reading a few pages of dense prose, and I, I just can't overcome it. So. Um, um, however much you know, I, I desperately want to learn. So the, um, the sort of idea I had in my mind was to get into uh, so it would be like a sort of Alan Corrin kind of figure, you know, a humorous columnist. And uh, the, but the, I, I was aware that there weren't very many opportunities, and they they never they never seemed to be advertised. You know, you had to sort of try and make a few connections and get a bit of a reputation, and hopefully something would lift off. I thought it might be best to actually try and launch a magazine this was just before the internet started to happen just before oh. the world wide web so it would have been uh, you know 10 years later i would have thought i would launch a website and i would have tried that and it would have failed and then i would have got a job but um i i clung to the idea that i might be able to do that and i made various approaches i did a, a couple of two or three years of selling advertising space to kind of get an idea of how the publishing industry worked but i realized i wasn't really uh there was no kind of lateral shift there was no way to make your way then across you know to to journalism those people had so little respect or time or or inclination to talk to the the sort of advertising salespeople and uh and, and just consider them to be of an entirely different species if anything it was counterproductive so then i uh then I went and did a journalism course at uh, the um, London College of Printing in, in sort of Farringdon area, just behind the Eagle Pub. And I, that was a fairly short course. It was three months long, I seem to remember. It was about periodical journalism, so like magazine writing and page layout and so on. And I thought this will give me the information I need. And uh, there were then desktop publishing apps, uh, software, as it was called, Quark, I think it was called. Yeah. And uh, so it all seemed to be sort of quite promising. And um, I co-edited the magazine at the end of that course with a man called Martin Daubney, incidentally, who has recently reachieved a degree of fame. He ended up editing Loaded for a while and then Loaded Folded. But he's now uh, one of of the uh, Brexit MPs uh, under Nigel Farage, interestingly. He uh, he gave it all up and has has, um, become a Euro MP. Um, But. Uh, yeah, that was all kind of looking quite good. I started doing a little bit of freelance writing for a number of uh, magazines and newspapers, local papers, mainly not very much money in it at all. Got a few items into the Independent, which was still relatively new at that point and uh, encouraging to new young writers and and not absurdly sort of lefty and studenty. And um, and then one of them asked me, it was actually the Camden and St Pancras Chronicle, I remember, asked me if they would, uh, it was like three or four local newspapers sort of syndicated, would I write a story about uh, uh, improvised comedy classes. People were taking to learn how to do improv because it was very popular on the telly with uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yes. And 
uh, and people were sort of doing that as a as a a way of winding down in the evening. Really, it was more like uh, just like you might do amateur dramatics or play bridge or whist or something. It was just a sort of uh, a sort of format for people to be sociable and a bit creative and, and crazy and sort of uh, you know uh, let off a bit of steam on a Wednesday night. Some of those people were quite talented and funny, and one or two of them were professional stand-ups as well who were trying to uh, you know get a little bit of latitude again into their sort of skill set. But most of them were just doing it for a laugh. And um, and I really, really enjoyed it. And then I also signed up for a full, you know, 12-week course. Um, it's Wednesday evenings and you would... It is something that you can be meaningfully taught improv in that sense because there are quite a significant set of rules that enable you to cooperate with people on stage, more so really than stand-up. And, um, and it was just really, really interesting and engaging. And I found it a really... Uh, I don't know. I found it like almost like a really youthful set of rules for life, how to, like, engage with what somebody else was saying on stage that actually felt like a set of skills that you could then take and, and apply to your, to your real life, you know, listening and working with and building on and, and being uh, constructive in your dialogue. It was actually an extraordinarily positive sort of attitude just to coexisting with other humans generally. So I became quite sort of, um, what was the word evangelical, I suppose, about improv for a couple of years and did it real enthusiasm but there's no money in it at all partly because uh most people they'll go and watch the comedy store players on, a, on at the comedy store but they don't go and see it very much and even if they do of course there's five of you on stage you need to split the money so you know it's it's quite a problematic uh it's, it's actually it's, it's taken off at the Edinburgh Festival in the last few years and there are some troops who are starting to find a way of making it viable but for a long time it really was just kind of for fun I mean is but, it, sorry uh, to interrupt Simon yeah. isn't the answer a bit like in, in, in pop music that you won't necessarily make money from records but you'll make money from merchandising so it's the kind of like ancillary <laughs> service well I don't know what the merchandising would be with you <laughs> <laughs> The one place that people sometimes did make money, as with stand-up, in fact, is in the corporate market. There were corporate uh, events that were organised where you could teach, like, 30 sales team of 30 young people. To, John, uh, John, you, Cleese, you know. John Cleese used to do that kind of stuff, didn't he? Yes, famously, yeah. Video arts, yeah, made a fortune out of it. And um, and I think a lot of people would like to, you know, walk in those footsteps. That's, that's something everyone is very well aware of. But they, you can earn a bit of money by, by uh, yeah, hosting an improv session and a company team building exercise kind of day. And that, that genuinely was how a lot of them, uh, you know, made, made ends meet. But then when I got the chance and somebody said, you know, there's a course you can do in stand-up as well, I thought, yeah, great. I was a bit of a course junkie, basically, at that point. And so I went along and did that one as well. And this was in 96, I think. Wow. And, so, you, uh, so you learned it from a course. No, that's incredible. I thought it was like, it would be more like you were, you know, you were sort of cutting your teeth at school, you know, with the bullies and that stuff, that that kind of, that old uh, chestnut. I'm afraid not. No, I mean, I think... I think I was a bit of a smart ass in school. Yeah, I was going to answer back to the teacher, a bit, you know, but... Um, but it wasn't. It didn't ever feel to me like this is this is how I'm going to earn my living. I don't really? think anyone really thought that stand was a living at the time. Not even in '96 when I was when I did the course again. It wasn't with the intention of learning how to do it professionally. It was much more like, oh, let's see what this is like. I don't wow. think it's any more any more or less extraordinary to do than any creative writing course or acting course. Most of it is trying stuff out in front of other people and then giving you helpful feedback. Essentially, it provides a safe space for you to go wrong, you know, and for people to explain why they didn't laugh. And that's really useful because otherwise you are terrified, you know, the first few times you get up because you have no understanding of what might happen. Well, on, but, that, on that note, Simon, because this is something I think about, uh, I, mean, I don't do very much 
public speaking, but I do a bit and I certainly don't do any stand-up. What do you think it is? I'm, sh- I'm sure you must have thought about this. What is it that makes appearing on stage in front of people so terrifying? Why, why do we have that response when we, most rational people don't expect to get shot or stabbed as a result? So what is it that yeah. makes it so, so scary in the brain? I suppose it's saying something out loud that, that um, you know, expecting it to make a connection. It fails to make a connection. And everyone being goes, a bit, being, a bit like Rory, being a bit like Rory Stewart that. then. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's, some people have said, you know, that there is no greater fear, you know, in any social animal that, than that you would be cast out of the tribe, that you would yeah. be expelled, expelled, you know, ah. and um, which would have meant death for our ancestors. And so anyone who sticks their neck out and, and sort of goes, you know, the reason you get the laugh is partly because it's like subconsciously registered. It's, that you took a risk uh, saying it. The, the it's, trans, it's transgressive. It's transgressive, isn't it? If that's one way, you know, or or it can just be absurd, you know, it might. I mean, transgressive would be called edgy material, yes, because you're on the edge of what might be acceptable to say. The edge moves all the time, so what might be edgy one day is either just completely acceptable the next day, and we've all just come to understand that, or it might have become beyond the edge and and just simply, you know, uh, offensive. Which is, it's fine, you can have philosophical conversations about whether or not anything should be offensive, but if an audience decide in a split second as a consensus that that is just, you're just being mean or cruel, you know, and they and they clam up, then then the trickle of sweat will suddenly instantly appear as a small of your back and uh, and it's lost, you know. So how do you test your material these days? What, what's, your, what's your process for building up to, say, a big show like Live at the Apollo? Well... You get the Edinburgh Festival, which is which are the big shows now on an annual basis when you've got a brand new hour and you're supposed to do a few previews, which it's understood when people buy the tickets that, you know, they don't know, you don't know really whether this is going to work and it's oh. a work in progress and they count for that, you know. But you don't want to overdo that because then they go in with a kind of artificially encouraging, generous attitude, which can in itself give you a... Um, a bum steer as to whether the material will work or not, if you know what I mean. You know, you you actually sort of kind of need to know whether it will work in open combat or not. So you do still have to take the risk. But, um, of course, it gets easier because you start to become more aware of what's likely to work, like with any sort of craft, you know, which is more of a craft than an art form. I think it's just something like, it's like being a blacksmith or whatever. After a while, you just learn how how to, you know, hammer it out, basically. And, and you can see roughly what sort of rhythms and, and springs, mechanisms, you know, how to release the joke, how to release the, the joke element in, in what you're saying in the right way, which word to use, where to place it in the sentence, where to put the pause, you know. You get that kind of instinctive sense. If you think about it, if you try to make it too conscious, it, it will sound a bit studied and, and audiences will pick up on that. You know, it, it, it remains conversational, but it's no more mysterious really than learning how to use the language in conversation with a degree of coherence and you know and and to remain interesting to somebody it's just that exaggerated a little bit but it just has to be it it just has to be learned on the job really in terms of like generally building new material i mean if you're if you're just if you're a club comedian doing 20 minute sets in in the clubs around the country then the, the the key is to just try and have a new line in there every night you know just try and one or two new lines gently worked in if if they don't get a laugh 
you know, people have forgotten about it a couple of minutes later because you're back back on terra firma. If they do, you can expand them a little bit and sort of develop that thought. And gradually over the course of a year, hopefully you've got a brand new 20 minutes at the end of it, you know. But to come up with a brand new hour for Edinburgh is a little bit different because you have usually a little bit of light and shade in an Edinburgh show. You know, it goes on a bit of a journey. It's not usually an hour sustained at the same pitch that a 20-minute club set would be. So it's a little bit harder to just like try a line now and again and then gradually accumulate an hour at the end of it. You can do that. And that would be, you know, I mean, some people would say that would be their preference for an hour instead of one that that attempts to kind of have some great narrative arc. But um, but generally speaking, uh, an Edinburgh show will have a, a theme and you want to address it and kind of reach some sort of conclusion, maybe tell a story, maybe explore something that's important to you in your life or something. And that's a bit of a tradition anyway, which has emerged now in Edinburgh that makes sense of being in one comedian's company for a whole hour, whereas, you know, at a comedy club, they're only like 20 minute sets, which is kind of the ideal, really, if you just want to laugh, because, you know, just laughing at somebody for 20 minutes is fantastic for a whole hour. You, there are, I think, very few comedians who can just be blazingly funny for an hour and, and the time never lags at all which is why we tend to kind of try and build in some structure into it so that you kind of even when you know you have moments when you stop laughing and when they're saying something that's interesting in a in a different way you know and, and so that becomes a little bit harder to to um to find the opportunity to just road test that subtly in the middle of a, of a, a club set to go back to an earlier question simon how would you describe your your politics if, if, if it can be boiled down to a, a, a few words well um, open to persuasion is certainly a big part of it <laughs> <laughs> i sometimes think that my politics have sort of emerged are or downstream of if you like the sort of persona that i've gradually sort of developed almost through a feedback loop really with the audience and this is not to say that i don't have any sort of strong convictions but a lot of a lot of my persona on stage is um is the result of becoming aware of how audiences saw me if you know what i mean i i i tried out different outfits literally you know the first few times i was up on stage i was wearing kind of black jeans and a black leather jacket like a sort of you know, like I thought I was in a, an Elvis Presley movie or something. I it quickly got the message that audience didn't uh, feel that that was a good fit. You know, they didn't accept that really. And as soon as I was dressed more in tailored clothing, they were like, yes, that's who you are. Mm. You're uh, you're a slight bit of a throwback to an Edwardian sort of uh, benign, uh, you know, Downton Abbey sort of class of, uh, of, of individual who can simply see how the world is what they're meant to be and is rather sort of perturbed by the oiks and that kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and gradually that sort of developed. Uh, it wouldn't have been who I think my friends would have said I was in real life, you know, in, in 1995, just before I started doing it. That wasn't really how I was perceived at all, you know, or how I sort of presented myself. And I, I do sometimes wonder whether my politics haven't just sort of emerged in order to shore up and and reinforce the views which are just sort of naturally coming for for comedy purposes. Because you get the, the strongest half and connection from the audience when they when they get the sense that you have recognised what it is about you that's funny, even though you aren't directly referencing it. Do you see what do you know what I mean? Yes, like a degree of self-awareness, but but played through irony is like is important in stand-up. If you're trying to go to the audience, you know, uh, 
there are there are uh, a lot of female comedians who uh, a few years ago uh, I think struggled because they had sort of internalized the idea that you need to go on stage and sort of like Joe Brand or someone and sort of go, oh, men, men are rubbish, aren't they? Yeah. And, uh, they don't want to go out with me because I'm ugly and, and I, you know, and I, I know I'm, and I can't even seem to make my clothes fit. And a lot of people, women in particular in the audience, people often forget that half the audience is women as well. They talk about women in comedy and often forget about women in audiences. Women in the audience would think, no, you're not. You're you're perfectly within range. You're quite attractive. You could probably style your hair a little bit more flatteringly and maybe just buy clothes that fit you. You know, it's it's not that difficult. It would be it would become like disingenuous. It would seem disingenuous that they were trying to present themselves as these hopeless failures, whereas in fact they weren't at all. Now you have women like uh, Sarah Pascoe and uh, Catherine. Um, Is that Catherine Ryan? Catherine Ryan, yes. They are very attractive, well-presented women who are completely unapologetic about the fact that they know how to style their hair to their best advantage and they don't talk about that. They've moved on, you know, and that's a much more comfortable dynamic. And it's a, um, it's similar with, you know, with a bloke like me, I could sort of go, you know, I'm a bit, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a bohemian or whatever. But if they don't believe that, that's who I think of myself as being truthfully, you know, somebody who, who's disorganized, you know, far more interested in um, keeping up with arts, culture, literature, music, and so on, than I am with uh, politics, frankly. You know, politics I find sort of tiresome and delusional, if I'm really honest. You know, most people's involvement in politics is so patchy and incomplete and um, and and tainted and hampered by confirmation biases of one kind or another and, and their own sort of, you know, their own heuristics and their own... Um, priors and so on that it's sort of pointless but you feel like you have to have certain opinions in order to you know just kind of connect with your sort of sense of integrity you know have an integrated personality in that sense my my honest view about politics is uh, better expressed for, for for comedy purposes as well as in reality by a line dave cohen told me i, I haven't didn't see him uh, do it himself the um bigoted alf garnet uh, yeah. <laughs> alf garnet one of his uh, sitcoms gordon uh, brown when, oh yes the conversation came up about politics and alf garnet said well i don't know i've lived under 14 prime ministers and i've been poor under every bleed in one of them <laughs> and i just think that sells you everything you really need to know about politics in this country you know i find some of the characters fascinating and i find some of the propositions interesting but i remember after brexit for instance which i was very agnostic about all the way up to it and people thought i was pro brexit just because i wasn't you know like foamingly remain and um, which by comedy standards you know everyone was sort of expected to be or had had decided they were you know were were appalled that this um you know un, un, unreconstructed bigot fat farage was was leading people off the edge of a cliff and all the rest of it and i was like well i can see the sort of pros and cons i see the arguments i can see why some people might regard sovereignty as you know parliamentary sovereignty or the uh, sovereignty of the nation as being more important i i was uh, agnostic and then afterwards i was rather dismayed to find that so many people, especially in my sort of comedy community, would just 
so aghast, so appalled, you know, that they just felt that this had emboldened racist, this had set us back 30 years, this was going to be an economic catastrophe. I felt quite destabilized. I remember I stayed in the in a, in a hotel, quite a nice hotel in a London, sort of Tower Bridge area on the night of the referendum, because I had a corporate up there and they put, put you up in a nice hotel. And I came out the following morning, switched on the TV, you know, and there's that sort of BBC uh, with Hugh Edwards discussing it, and there was that huge red banner across the screen, the British people have voted to leave the EU, and I could hardly make sense of it at first. You know, I was so convinced that it would just be another damp squib like the Scottish referendum, where we all got terribly anxious and then nothing really happened. And I was kind of shocked, and I remember walking around the city of London, and it was quite quiet. And uh, I remember thinking it was that sort of like that Marxist phrase, all that is solid melts into air, you know, that whole feeling that a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, the great banks, the great financial institutions that build themselves huge stone edifices in order to, uh, you know, emphasize that they are extraordinarily stable and robust institutions suddenly seemed very contingent, you know, and, and but perhaps not quite all that they had seemed to be after all. And now three years have gone and they're all still there. And most people that work in the city still seem to be doing quite well. And I still seem to get pretty much as much work as that. I know it hasn't happened yet, but it just seems to me to have been yet another, you know, extraordinarily exaggerated hysteria almost and, and an attempt to just reinforce more than anything else our addiction to the news cycle, really, which I just find is very depressing because actually, you know, real life is elsewhere, really. That's what I think. Have you seen the latest uh, opinion survey about Westminster intentions? Because the Brexit party is ahead of everybody else now. Brexit. I've seen two of those recently in which one is the Brexit party is ahead of everybody. And Martin Daubney, uh, my friend, will be able to uh, guarantee me a nice seat in some sort of sinecure. And the other one, um, the Lib Dems sort of shooting. Because they are the, well, they are the only two parties, of course, that offer any kind of definite policy, don't they now? If you voted Tory or Labour, you'd have no idea what that might mean. You would know now. And I, th- I always felt during the 2017 election, there's so many people who seem to feel that uh, overturning the referendum result was the absolute priority, that nothing else mattered at all, and yet were unwilling to vote for the one party that was promising to do that, the Lib Dems. And I suppose they all felt it would be a wasted vote. But if they'd all got together and said, OK, we can do that, you know, they could have done it. And uh, I, I don't suppose you'd get the very best quality of, of MPs. I, should, I, I understand that, you know, Bre- Lib Dems probably don't attract the absolute top talent in the way <laughs> supposedly the Tory party do, but I don't really think that would have made very much difference, you know, by and large. So you now have a situation where I think people are coming to believe that that is, you know, that that is the one thing that absolutely needs to be resolved. But the thing, the tragic thing is, I think it could have been resolved either way. And I think we exaggerate the importance of it. You know, individual events in your own life are invariably of, of greater importance. And, uh, and sort of ceding control of your fate and your state of mind to politics is, is you know, it's, it's not much better than ceding it to whether or not United win the cup. You know, it just seems to be a very, it's almost becoming like a political disease now for us that we're, we're just far too, far too inclined to like attach all our thoughts and hopes and expectations and our whole modeling of the universe, you know, to a, to a political model. What was it like being on BBC's Question Time? 
Um, well, I've been on it twice, and the first time, I mean, but my thought, I think my job as a, as a stand-up comedian to go on there is almost the opposite of what most comedians who do go on seem to think it is, which I, I think a lot of comedians go on there to express slightly utopian views about how the world ought to be and how we all ought to be able to get together and get along and help one another and so on. Uh, whereas I think a comedian ought to be able to sort of go the other way in a way and just be sort of, uh, you know, capable of expressing some of those more mischievous, you know, uh, pessimisms <laughs> about what's likely to happen. Because that's, ten I think that's kind of the job of the comedian, you know, to be able to be, to, to, to be honest about, you know, the failings of humanity rather than express uh, shiny sort of golden rainbow hopes for them. But um, it was interesting the first time I was on next to Diane Abbott and Caroline Lucas. And my overall impression, to be honest, sitting next to Diane Abbott was that she has not, she no longer has the, the, the grasp, you know, that I would expect of a, a shadow home secretary. And I felt a little bit embarrassed almost on a couple of occasions, you know, she was making points. I mean, I, it, I felt to correct her as robustly as I was inclined to would, would almost look like bullying from anybody, let alone from a you know comedian. So that was a bit weird. Um, there was a great, there was a great W quote, which I'm going to nick, probably massacre because you're the comedian here, uh, <laughs> and and it was something like, uh, so Diane Abbott's told she or she she reads about uh, in the newspaper. It says uh, uh, one Brazilian killed an earthquake, and she goes to uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Oh my God, how many is a Brazilian? Um, yes. <laughs> if it were just things like that, I wouldn't Matt, I wouldn't mind too much. It more there's a sort of her processing speed has slowed right down. I, I don't want to speculate too much on what might cause it, you know, because this is after all, you know, a slightly public sort of forum. But there is really is a sense that she's just like taking a long time to process and compute. And um and 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 then is is not aware of of like the incoherence of what comes out at the end, and I felt that was I felt that was quite sort of weird and embarrassing to be to be sort of um, sitting next to her kind of like almost like founding the audience like are you are you hearing what I'm hearing here? Mm. Second time around, I was on with Ken Clark, who is probably as close to a sort of avatar for my beliefs in all honesty in the House of Commons as as anyone. So I was almost redundant there that time, really. Every time, it would always come to me after Ken, and I would always go, well, I think Ken's right. <laughs> I agree with Ken. Yeah, I agree with Ken, you know, which felt a bit lame. But, you know, I didn't see the point in being pointlessly provocative just to have something to say. And half the questions, were a couple, exactly the same question came up about Brexit as had done the previous line. It was like a nine-month gap, and the question was, will staying within the customs union deliver Brexit as understood by most Leave voters? Exactly the same question. And then um, and then another question was about whether or not women should be expected to hand over their mobile phones in, in, um, if a, to the police who were trying to prosecute a rape allegation they've made, which is like such a skid patch for a you know white male middle-aged comedian to have any kind of views on at all. I was like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose so. I don't know. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine Twitter sort of getting, you know, powering up and getting ready to, you know, completely um, excoriate me for any deviation from what's the correct line on that. So it was it was OK. But I prefer a couple of times I've been on the big question, which is more interesting because the big question, Nikki Campbell show made by the same company, which is so there's a sort of crossover of who they book. 
But there you get to sort of debate something that's more like a moral or ethical issue or like perhaps something that seems to be, you know, defining the times we live in. And um, and and there you can actually have a, you know, good old fashioned row about things, you know, in broader terms. Politics as such and what policy should be is just so it's so hemmed in and so limited by what's actually possible and what can what can you know, and what and what they sort of sequence of events will be between passing legislation and what and what will be experienced by the people who live under it the the uh, you know the law of un, un, unintended consequences plays such a huge role in that that i i find unless you're really fully equipped to speak on those matters it's a bit of a charade eddie izard's taken a step into politics do you think that that's ever something that you might decide to do yourself or would could you rule it out or rule it in at any point? I certainly wouldn't do it in the way that Eddie has, which is, um, you know, with extreme sort of conviction of his of his liberal progressive agenda, you know, being something that cannot be left in the hands of, of professional politicians. He may or may not be about to deliver anything worthwhile. But my my gut feeling is, you know, and this is a man who made me laugh pretty much more than anybody else in his day. I don't think it's I don't think it's an appropriate field for somebody who whose gifts are in, you know, absurdity and and uh, and again in in a sort of, you know, cherishing of the of the of the wonderful bizarreness of the human condition. You know, politics is just so grindingly the reality is it's so grindingly full of compromise and uh, quotidian paperwork. It's no, I and I wouldn't I wouldn't be tempted into it, I don't think. Never say never, but um, I, I just feel I'd be terrified that I'd be exposed because I just don't think my grasp is is deep enough. I don't think it's I don't think it's possible for a, a comedian to have, you know, the full like three dimensional uh, mapping of, of 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 the world and 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 everybody's different issues and 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 demands and and responsibilities and how that how that relates to the the legislation or the propaganda or whatever it is that you're attempting to to deliver to to address those issues it, it's it's a massive massive concern there are of course chances who do enter politics who are no better than a comedian would be but that i don't think is a good enough reason for thinking well it may as well be me as them so so uh, you're not you're not you're not you're not throwing your hat in the ring for the tory uh, leadership campaign i'm afraid i'm not just yet no probably <laughs> the only person in the country that isn't at this point yeah <laughs> Well, actually, I mean, I did think when I saw Martin, the panda is standing. The panda is, is he? Well, well, she she is considering it. She is is taking soundings from the party. She has a quite a a degree of gravitas in the image I'm looking at. I think (laughs) the way that left eyebrow droops over her eyes. So I think we need to explain what the panda is, by the way. Yeah. So for anyone that's wondering what on earth we're talking about, um, my my Skype. And Twitter uh, avatar, or at least my, my Skype avatar, is is a picture of Ting Ting, who's a baby panda. Who who, who you've who is actually who, I, who, I, who, who I've adopted? You've adopted. Well, own, owns a very patriarchal way of putting it. Uh, for yeah. I'd like to but think. is that a, that is a toy panda, isn't it? That I'm looking at. Yes, it is. It's it, well, it is, well, it, yeah. it, it, it technically yes. But Ting Ting is a real panda that you have genuinely adopted at a zoo, no, is it? Well, I, I like I like to think of her as real. We like to think of her as real. Oh, so she's not she's not even the avatar of a real panda. She that really is that's it that Ting yes. Ting there. Okay, yes. right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when you said you'd adopted her, I thought maybe you like you pay hundred quid a year 
to London well, Zoo it, it, after their a, panda, and they send you a they send you a little sort of you know. Okay. No, it's a bit like done it's, that. It's probably a, a self conscious, um, subconscious reflection of uh, Sebastian Fly, Brighthead revisited, and he has uh, he uh, buys uh, yes. he buys a hairbrush to spank to spank his uh, his teddy when he gets naughty, that kind of stuff. What was that bear called? Did that Aloysius? Aloysius. That sounds about right. Yes. Yes. Oh, Lord Floyd, most amusing character, sir. <laughs> Coming back to characters and, uh, you know, people going into politics, I think given, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's move into politics and, and uh, I, I think the general public would be, you know, open to, to anybody really taking it up as long as they have sound policies and, you know, speak well. And I think I remember um, there was a documentary with Alan Davies and... Marcus Dusatoy about uh, comedians doing maths, and there's this thing yeah. thing they discovered. I don't know if you uh, my me my memory's going back a, a little while about it. I think it's around 2009, where they say that comedians' brains are wired slightly differently, and they're able to kind of compute things much quicker than other people, uh, and and that kind of adds to your ability to deal with <laughs> comedy. You know, a bit like black cab drivers have got you know they've developed some part of their brain and i always thought that would be a fantastic advantage to have in in politics especially when you're arguing because you could you're so used to dealing with hecklers you know being in the house of commons would be a piece of cake for you well there are a number of uh, assertions and suppositions <laughs> which i take issue with um i remember marcus Pesotoy and, and daro brian presenting a, a, a math program together i was on that one briefly all um, oh, right i don't know if that was the same one and alan davis was another uh, guest on on that same show um Dara is an extremely bright man. I think he has a degree in astrophysics, and he is a really, really clever guy. He has Roger Penrose books on his on his shelf and stuff. He understands that kind of stuff. Most comedians don't, and I think it's a um, I think it's a sweeping generalization to say that their brains are wired differently in any respect. It would be quite interesting to see if there were any sort of overlaps in. Uh, DNA snips or whatever that would indicate a certain, you know, predisposition to doing comedy or if there were any kind of profiling techniques. But mm. I know some comedians who are really, really quick and and I know others who are equally funny, but th th through different means, you know. I see. I don't think it can, I don't think there's any sort of um, universal, there is a bit of banter, but I think there's actually, I think an awful lot of, you know, uh, banter comes about from the confidence and the familiarity that people have with one another. You know, if you're in a car journey with four or five blokes who all know each other well and have been mates for a long time, the banter will fly around a lot more quickly than it does if it's um, if it's five strangers. What a comedian is perhaps capable of doing, some to the ones that kind of use the audience in that way, is creating that kind of vibe, well, that degree of confidence that you have when you're with your mates just when you're on stage. So you're like kind of acting with that kind of immediate, you know, there's there's no um, there's no inhibition, I suppose. You know, you, you don't mm. edit. You trust yourself to say things as soon as they fly out. And um, I don't think that's unique to comedians at all. But the other um, thing that I would take issue with is, is the degree to which heckling is an important part of the job. Actually, there's much less heckling nowadays in comedy clubs than you would expect. And if you go to, if you do an actual tour show, I mean, when I'm touring, it's actually quite difficult to get the audience to contribute anything. You sort of want them to, really. I mean, the difference between stand-up and theatre, you know, between stand-up and just a monologue, 
really is is the idea that the fourth wall is broken and the audience is supposed to be a part of the experience. Could you not plant somebody in the audience just to be a, a deliberate rabble rouser? Well, someone like Tim would be pretty good, I think. I, I'm, I'm, up, I'm, up for, I'm up for the challenge. But with Panda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the, the you know the the, the the practicalities of touring with a heckler. I think Michael Gove's going to find this out fairly quickly. Yes, yeah, but it does. It actually, I mean, occasionally, I mean, I've I've swung. I've said both sides of this. Most hecklers think that they're contributing and being helpful, and in theory, that is possible. But the reality is, most of what they say is just crap. You know, they just shout, yeah. "Right, I'm here for it." You know, and you can't understand a bloody word of it, nor than the audience. By the time you've understood what it was, it wasn't worth it, and it's broken. All the momentum has gone. You know, right? And and they, they're usually and just the, drunk and silly, basically. Yeah, a far greater problem is when the audience are talking and they're um, amongst themselves, so that you can't really address them because you know, without being rude. Sorry, what was that you were saying? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awkward. Uh, but um, that's that obviously has no real bearing on politics. The, 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 if you do get somebody who shouts something out and you can respond to it, it does galvanize the audience and it does create, it reinforces your authority on stage and that can be helpful. You know, if they've seen that you had a situation and you dealt with it quickly, that's great. But um, it's not quite the same as Prime Minister's Question Time. However feeble they might appear when they're coping with it, you know, you do at least have to actually have a, a response that doesn't just sort of delegitimize what it was they had to say, which is basically what, what a comedian does to a punter. Do you know so, uh, Jeff, sorry, do you know Jeff Norcott? Yes, I do, yes. What what do you make of his uh, his 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 take on the world? His I mean he is often he and I are often described as being, you know, one or one of the two right wing comedians, but I think we're very different. I think our, our energy is quite different. I think our take is quite different. I think Jeff's quite he, he's very good at um, writing and delivering uh, topical jokes that address the specific minutiae of the of the sort of political churn, you know, and and the characters of them and so on, um, which I'm personally not that kind of interested in or capable of, of delivering sort of on a regular basis that much. Um, I don't know that he is. I don't know that he's sort of quite as. Uh, how can I put it? I think he's I think he's quite like a current Tory in the sense that I don't think there is much of a sort of underlying um, kind of vision of the world as, as such, you know, that, that kind of informs it. I think if you were to say of my persona or to the extent to which I've sort of allowed it to become sort of genuine, my sort of Toryism is a little bit more like kind of the Peter Hitchens mold. You know what I mean? That kind of quite old high Tory a little bit churchy, you know, just kind of a despair at the modern world, really. It's all gone to rack and ruin. There's very little any of us can do about it anymore. There's very little worth saving from the wreckage now. That kind of attitude, you know, for comedic purposes, and if I'm honest, that's kind of, that, that is partly how I feel. Um, whereas that sort of, well, I think give Teresa a chance, you know, she can make this work sort of thing, that, I, 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 you know, that's just as, as, as creating balance to a sort of left-wing perspective is not quite as... Um, it doesn't. It doesn't quite chime with me in in the same way. Does that make sense? I don't know. I, don't, I, I, I like watching Jeff. He's very funny, you know. But it's but it's kind of, it's kind of a you know common sketch, I guess. Um, but I think he is performing a very valuable service in the sense that he's kind of going, I vote Tory, and I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. Uh, you know, I quite like the Tories, 
and a lot of us sort of just want a chance to uh, earn a living and raise a family and be left alone. You know, I, I get all that. That's 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 all fine. But it's not. Um, I, mine is more like a sort of deeply pessimistic sort of view of the world, <laughs> if you know what I mean. The uh, the Times had a, a rather fawning interview with Jeremy Corbyn yesterday. Uh, I think you've already answered the question uh, within the last few few minutes when, when you've been talking about you know raising a family and just getting on with things. In in as much as you know, we we talk loosely about matters economic and matters financial. Do you have any 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 sort of burning issues that you would like to see addressed in in economic terms by? whichever, whoever forms the next government? In economic terms. Is this in terms of how things should be managed, you know, whether whether we need a central bank to set interest rates artificially low or whether we need a central bank to basically destroy the economy and bring us into a Japanese-style stagflation (laughs) that lasts 30 years or that kind of stuff. The Japanese, considering they've been flatlining for 30 years, they nevertheless seem to have quite a decent standard of living, don't they? Yeah, but they are they are also stoic. I mean, I, I saw some stats yeah. on this that, that really are really are mind bending. So if you take into account that the loss of wealth between property values and the stock market, the Japanese experience through the 90s was a greater loss of wealth uh, in GDP terms. It was the equivalent of two Great Depressions in the States. That's how crushingly awful it was. And yet, as you say, you know, where's the where's the writing in the streets? Where's the you know, the high unemployment. So I, I take my hat that off. It's extraordinary, isn't it? God, I hadn't realized it was that bad. Was that, I would imagine a lot of that property wealth was concentrated in the hands of a few, was it? I suppose it was, it's actually just, the emperor, it was just the emperor's back garden. Yeah. I mean, remember they were saying there was a golf course in Tokyo in 1998 or 1988, I think it was, or whenever that was worth more than the island of Manhattan. It was, yes. I mean, it was nonsense. But those were the kind of, that, I'm sure that wasn't true, but there were those kind of figures that were. Probably was true. I mean, the one that was most widely quoted was that the, Imper- the grounds of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo were worth more than the state of California. Bloody hell. I mean, that's obviously just absurd levels. To say they've lost it, I suppose, it, it means that they had meaningfully got it. Yeah, that's a very fair point. It's the idea that everyone could have got out at NASDAQ 5000, whereas reality yeah. was basically one lucky sod could have done. Everyone else would have just got buried. Exactly. Yeah. So they just had a psychological sense of, of astronomical wealth. But um, no, it is impressive how they have managed to maintain social order and civil order. And um, I'm not sure they're in. Uh, they're often held up as, as you know, an example of how to cope without descending into dystopian hell in many respects. You know, the amount of p- private space that they all have, the, the degree of crowding in Tokyo that they put up with without without losing their shit. But I'm, I'm not sure that they have answered all of those questions quite successfully, as we think. There's certainly um, their fertility rates are extremely low now, aren't they? And there's there seems to be a sort of almost... The, the kind of bond between men and women, the sort of natural sort of processes of, um, of, of family creation and that sort of thing seem to be almost dissolving. Um, this is just, I'm, I haven't read deeply into it, but I've seen some sort of articles about the sort of state of social dynamics in, in Tokyo that's, that, you know, young men and women have just stopped having sex, basically. <laughs> and I think it must, to some extent, uh, well, it it would seem to correlate to me with the idea that they just don't see how they can, you know, meaningfully raise a family. I do quite like that. Um, there is, I think, uh, a sort of Republican stroke libertarian principle, which I've seen espoused in America, which is that the, the, the job of, of government fundamentally 
is to maintain a state of affairs where young people feel confident about starting a family. That that's that's a simple, very simple, mm. straightforward benchmark. Do you feel confident enough about the present and the immediate future that you think it's okay to to start a family? Because that seems to be a fairly natural and an ordinary uh, ambition, and it is the one thing without which, obviously, society does fundamentally collapse. Not that everybody, of course, has a personal responsibility to do that, but it's the responsibility of government to create a, a context in which that seems like a reasonable ambition. So I'm not sure on that front whether they have succeeded. I don't know. In terms of in terms of British like overall massive financial changes, I mean my suspicion is that the, you know, as you remember from when we were talking about Smith, um, Smith I think would look at the present system. He would think that the tax code is absurdly complex. He would say that. I think too much crony capitalism is is in place. The, the 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 wealth gap, regardless of whether or not it should be the ultimate measure of success, does it? You know, there is. It's not even like the ten percent or the one percent. It's now the point one percent who are just getting absurdly wealthy and leaving everyone behind, and that really does seem very dysfunctional. I don't see that that can be just allowed to continue forever, and yet, unfortunately, the problem is a lot of people like myself have sort of basically you know, trusted property with our ambitions for a, any kind of nest egg, you know, I basically got a house on the understanding that that would go up in value and I would not be taxed on it. That's where I've, what I've decided to do. But if I'm honest, I think the I think the healthiest way to settle a lot of those issues would probably be with a land value tax. I think the land value tax has got a lot, a lot going for it. And the, the, the jolt of introducing it would be very uh, challenging. But that, of of any major reforms, that would be the one that I would say has the most moral weight to it, because I don't think anyone should benefit. To be honest, um, you know, they, no nobody should benefit without without taxation at any rate from the value in 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 the in the land that they own, in the property that they own. That seems to me the me a much better way to encourage industry and enterprise rather than to tax people's income and tax people's the purchase of the things that are being created by industry and income but through uh, industry and innovation and enterprise through VAT and so on. It seems much more sensible to not tax those things any more than necessary and instead to simply tax the value of the land that is that you haven't done anything to to deserve. You know, We had a guest on Rory Sutherland who said that he, he thought it would be fairer to tax people on the basis of, of how much wealth they had. So when you're starting out in your career and you don't have anything, you're paying basically the same rate of tax, uh, obviously dependent on your income, but basically the same rate of tax no matter how much you have in assets. And it seems yeah. fairer that you would pay more if you have a greater amount of assets and rather than just trying to start out and build a family where you sh probably shouldn't pay any tax at all when you're in that state. And that seems to make a lot of sense. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, well, well, Sutherland, I know that name and I can't place him. Who is he? Ogilvy. He's the is uh, a senior director at Ogilvy uh, London, right. the advertising agency. Oh, okay, probably not the one I know then. But um, yeah, I think that's true. Assets and in particular land, you know. But if you, I mean, if you have shares and you're buying shares in a company, obviously that is uh, that is an issue in terms of the uh, uh, you know the occurrence of wealth through ownership of uh, appreciating assets, but it feels slightly less toxic to the functioning of society than just making money by owning land does. But the, um, I mean, I, I, I didn't finish Piketty's book, but I do think he makes a very valid point that you know, the, the fundamental problem that we face is that, is that over periods of, of stable economic growth, 
the uh, interest that accrues on on appreciating assets outstrips the growth itself and you it, you know you very quickly get an elite who are just you know racing ahead this happened in the the golden what well, they call it the gilded age wasn't it in the 20s and 30s and and it was only really the second world war that put an end to it you know well hopefully we wouldn't have to have anything quite so drastic this time but uh, i think that would be that would be a major challenge to um to, to try and address that that situation and whether or not of course it needs sort of supranational cooperation of the kind that we've recently rejected that's ironically you know but the, the reality is a huge amount of the uh, of the of the wealth and prestige that comes out of the city of london is its ability to connect people with offshore tax uh, regimes which um, which are you know i think are fundamentally rotten really if i'm honest you know so although I'm sort of, you know, what I would be regarded as right wing by a lot of people, uh, you know, that's some that's something on which I definitely give the left their due. I think it would be much it would make much more sense to try and find ways to do that, to uh, to tax on unearned wealth and, and accumulated assets. And meanwhile, to try and encourage industry and enterprise as much as possible and to ease the burden on, on young people in the first sort of 10, 20, 30 years of 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 their active economic life, you know. Far too much of the property of the of the of the country sort of ends up in the hands of of the elderly and uh, the established, who then just hold on to it in the hope of you know being able to. Obviously, I'm not against private property being handed on or heritability and so on. But uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna find money for public sector activity from anywhere, that seems to me the most you know the, not only the most morally neutral, but also just the most the, the least likely to suffocate activity. Right. And the other thing I would probably do is um, I would probably abolish about 50% of university courses. <laughs> well, that, that chimes with a recent guest we had on our last podcast, uh, Chris Clark, who has been working in um, academia and is probably about as disillusioned with the university uh, system as you are. By the sound of it, yeah, it's become a huge racket, a terrible, terrible racket. I'm sure it was well intentioned. The idea of um, offering, you know, loans across, you know, everything, and uh, they thought that, of course, that courses would be priced according roughly to how much value they're likely to add to your your own life. But of course, they've all just immediately shot up to the maximum. Mm. And uh, this is what I mean about, you know, uh, um, people like comedians not being able to get involved because they don't understand the law of unintended consequences. I doubt you'd find a single comedian, apart from myself, willing to say as much, you know, willing to say that the whole thing has become a terrible racket. It was well-intentioned, but it has just become a disaster. But that's the case, you know. It, and I'm not trying to deny anyone the chance to have the three years of fun that I had. You know, I'm not saying, I mean, I got a law degree and I've not become a lawyer, so you could very easily make the case that it was a waste of money in my case as well. But you play the percentages and you can see that a law degree from a decent university is likely to, you know, create the sort of economic opportunities for you that will allow you to immediately plow yourself back in. Nine, more than, more than, no more than 20 or 30% of people really are, are, are capable of benefiting meaningfully from what should pass from a college degree. All that's happened is massive grade inflation, massive devaluation of the certificate itself. And, and of course, a huge expansion then not only of the universities themselves and the courses that they run, but also the bureaucracy and all the various departments of student welfare of one kind or another that, you know, is built up around it, just a racket. And and it's it's rent-seeking of the worst kind, really. I think it's a, you know, I think it's a massive drain. If, if you want kids to have a paid gap year, I think I would be more encouraging of that kind of idea, to be honest. You know, here's 10 grand in your back pocket, go off and 
work in a refugee camp or something somewhere but you know the futility of most of the work of most of what they learn there and and all it all it has really done is made a nightmare for hr departments who have to try and work out which one of these degrees might actually mean something you've got a radio series simon evans goes to market on the I bbc have. and that's in the fifth series how did that come about I was talking to a, a producer called Talusha Galani at a BBC Christmas function, a party, and discussing. I'd had a sort of quite an interesting time around the time of the financial crash. Uh, we, we'd sold our house in 2007, and the place we were supposed to be buying when we moved out of London down to Brighton had fallen through, and we'd ended up renting just as the world caught fire. Wow. And I was great timing. A website called. It was great timing, although we then found that the place we were renting didn't belong to the landlord. He had already failed to pay his mortgage and they'd foreclosed on it. And so our, our tenancy was worth nothing. Oh, and no. so I had a couple of months of fighting that. And we ended up buying a place sooner than I would otherwise prefer to anyway. And also our money in the bank, you know, the main thing that happened, of course, at that time, the house price crash wasn't quite as as significant as it should have been really in the southeast. What instead happened, of course, was that sterling was devalued by about 25% almost overnight. And um, and so we lost most of the value of it through that anyway. Because oh, if, no. if I put the money in the bank and then bought Swiss francs with it, or even American dollars, we'd have been uh, we would have been laughing. That would have been fantastic. But we we did okay anyway. I mean, yeah. we, we managed to we were in a slightly stronger negotiating position going into buying the next place. But we didn't wait as long as I would have liked to have done. But it did make me aware of what was going on. I suppose to a, a greater extent than a lot of comedians. And um, I started following various blogs. There was one, as I say, called House Price Crash, a website. I think it still exists. And it had been anticipating the house price crash since about 2002. So obviously, you know, it was much more a case of a broken clock being right once in a while. But when I discovered it, it was just, it was happening. Mm. And, um, and so they seemed very interesting to me. And um, I just got quite interested in it. I became interested in gold and why, how it was that this sort of strange very archaic store of value, you know, which really has no intrinsic authority, you would think, in the marketplace anymore, and yet and yet still does, had had held its value. And and I was trying to explain this sort of stuff to her, and she said, But this is exactly we should we should make a series about this because the BBC would love that. It was it was at least then another year or two before it came out, by which time the crash was sort of receding into the memory a little bit, and that felt like yesterday's news. So we just made it a more general economic show rather than a, you know, let's explain the crash, which was kind of the initial idea. But uh, yeah, it then it then sort of just flowered because I think there is a, I think there is a hunger in that six thirty slot, the comedy slot on BBC Radio Four, for more grown up comedy. I think there is, you know, I think a lot of Radio Four listeners find that um, the comedy can sort of veer a little bit towards the juvenile sometimes, and so they are they quite enjoy the fact that there's a sort of what we like to flatter ourselves is a rather Reithian mix, you know, of information, education, and entertainment all in the. All in the in the in the mix for a comedy show. Obviously, you need to make sure that it's probably forty or fifty percent comedy rather than sort of thirty, thirty, thirty. But it's still uh, it's still got a little bit of fibre to it as well, which I which I do like. I'm quite pleased with that. I mean, it's, it must be a real challenge to write comedy for such a, a dry subject. I mean, you know, I've listened to some of them and they're absolutely excellent. And thank you. I mean, it's a uh, 
but you you were a writer on Not Going Out as well. So that must have been kind of a lot yeah. easier to have something like that. Well, you say that. I mean, to be, the thing with Not Going Out is I'm sent I'm, in the early days, in the second series, I was one of the main writers on it. But since then, it's basically being sent scripts which have got a few jokes that aren't working in the read throughs. And so can you improve on this? Right. And that's still, you know, that's still a, a good job to have. And I'm grateful for it. But that's actually quite difficult. And it, it does kind of just feel like you're changing a fuse, you know. Whereas to, to have the creative control over going to market is a much more satisfying thing. And you can start to think, right, this is my premise. This is what we want to explore. This is what we want people to understand by the end of it. And this is what I find inherently absurd about the world of coffee or funerals or whatever it is. And and you have, it's a much more engaging, you know, you've, you've got all of your faculty, you know, it's heart and hand and mind, you know, all, all working together. And, and it's a... Um, a much more satisfying experience overall, and and I would I don't know if it's easier. It's more time consuming, but I would say I, it's it's great. It's it's vastly preferable for me to try and write content that has that kind of that has that kind of purpose to it. You know, that's, mm. that's going somewhere that isn't just trying to sort of like dazzle you with uh, you know uh, plastic windmills and balloons for far for thirty minutes. <laughs> so, uh, what have you got in the pipeline? What's what's coming up for you? Well, funnily enough, the next programme I'm making for Radio 4 is a one-off documentary which will be going out in September, uh, which is about um, the dearth of right-wing voices in comedy, uh, not just on the BBC but generally in the UK, although I think not in America. America is much more successful at seeing both sides of the political equation uh, represented, uh, whereas um, in this country we seem to have and it's sort of a bit of a feedback loop that has polarised comedians very very rarely do you hear a strong right wing voice as i say jeff norcott himself of course would be one of the exceptions but again even then i think of him very much as a centrist really then you can get quite strong full-on leftist opinion or you can get kind of agnostic opinion but you very rarely hear on something like mock the week or the news quiz you know, a panel with a with what you might call a right-wing bias. The BBC get accused of political bias on both sides, which is usually a sign that they are managing to hold their own and keep the balance, of course, generally, in, in terms of the news coverage and so on. But uh, but I think they would admit themselves they really do struggle to find right-wing voices, and I wonder why that's happened. And I'm, I'm going to try and explore a few theories. So that's a quick half hour. That's a re- relatively serious uh, documentary-type uh, approach. That's for sort of mid-afternoon. Hopefully, we'll get another series of uh, Goes to Market. We'll be pitching that soon. Fantastic. Um, we've got our eye on the art market, among other subjects, but that hasn't been commissioned, so I mustn't uh, tempt fate. <laughs> and um, then I should be going to Edinburgh as well, of course, for the new hour there. Brilliant. So it's all happening. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I've got to ask the question about um, at the top level that you are as a comedian, what's it like with the other comedians? Are you all like... Oh, you know, when someone does a good show, are you, are you are you very competitive, or are you sort of very supportive of each other, or do you, do you not, or do you just not interact with not them? Interested. Well, when you start out and you're doing the comedy clubs, there's three or four of you on the bill. It is competitive, but in a good-natured way. But I would definitely right. say I was always aware that if somebody had had a better gig than me, and I'd want to do better than them, and I would be aware of it, and I would credit them with it, you know, generously enough. And I think that would always be expected of everyone. But there was a competitive edge. One of the sad things about touring you know you achieve a degree of success and you're out there on your own and you don't really see your other comedians from one week to the next right. you can pop into the comedy store and have a drink on a saturday night after the show if you want but you know that feels a bit i don't know it, it's a bit like kind of hanging around hey guys hi you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a bit sad so um 
yeah, you, you might miss each other out. And that's what's lovely about Edinburgh, in fact. You are all gathered there together again, and some of them you won't have seen for a whole year, you know, and you want them all to have good shows. I don't tend to go to see their shows early on in Edinburgh because the, the worst nightmare is that you go and see somebody and they absolutely nail something you've been trying to get that, but you haven't quite managed to kind of get right. And there they are with their version of it. And you go, Fuck, you know, that's right. uh, you have to swallow that occasionally. But, um, but actually it's a very, I think it is a very generous and supportive environment. There, there are, they are a good cohort, I would say comedians much more so than I, I believe in the acting world where there is, there are some friendships, but there are rivalries, definitely. And there is that kind of, damn, I could have played that part. That should have been me. Very few of us sort of allow that that kind of um, mindset to, to take hold because there is usually enough work for all comedians of one kind or another. Whereas, of course, in acting, there's roughly 10, 10 actors for every job going, you know, and even then that most of those only pay minimum wage. So we are lucky in that situation, or have historically been anyway. I think there are lots more new comedians coming up now, and that might change. So you've done a you've done a little bit of acting, but of course, doing sort of improv, live improv, must be the hardest form of of kind of comedy. And if you can do that, you'd be you'd be great as an actor because obviously you get time to love to, to do some acting. But equally, yeah. I do feel, and if somebody offered me a job, you know, I would take it, but um, or an audition. But I don't push for it because I'll be honest, I think it is a bit much. You know, there are lots of really great actors who've trained properly, who have beautifully modulated voices, and know genuinely how to. You know, do the job, you know, rather than just like winging it on the strength of a certain amount of chutzpah and, you know, familiarity with what it's like to be on stage. And I, I just think it's not, it's, if, I mean, Lee Mack has written his own sitcom and is in it, of course, that is entirely legitimate. You know, if you create your own product, then you get to be in it. Um, but I think if you're, you know, if there are roles on stage and so on that are being keenly contested by people who spent three years in drama school and you're going to swan in just because somebody goes, oh, look, it's that stand-up we like. I think that's a bit that's a bit shoddy, really. Well, I would probably not do that. I don't know, you know. I, I think if you can do comedy, it's the hardest thing to do. And if you can do that, then not drama... the same thing, though. Not the same thing at it's all. Not, it's I not th- the same. I think, I think drama is is like being aware of what you're doing when you're not speaking, being able to move smoothly across the stage without looking like you are aware that you're being watched, all those kind of things, you know. It's there's a there's a lot to it. As I say, I would I would take the opportunity if somebody were to come to me, but I'm not going to start pushing for it. I think that would be uh, a bit greedy. Well <laughs> I, I write and direct short films, so um if I if I find a role I'll definitely be on the phone to you. That that's of course right. would be absolutely fine because short films make no money, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's true as well, but uh, you know I'll be moving up into a feature film at some point, so that well, will be yeah. As I say, my door is always open. It's just oh. I'm not sticking my head out of it and, and sort of craning around. But uh... but I, to be honest, I absolutely I do actively seek comedians because I think they understand the subtlety of the material. And right. from, in my experience, and it's not just me that says this. I've I've, I've read other uh, other directors saying that this is this is the case because. You understand the subtlety of the material. You there is this translation that that can move into drama. I know it's completely different, but it's it's much harder to go the other way. You could do drama, but not be able to deal with a comedic piece, but not necessarily the other way around. So so we'll we'll go to uh, to our media picks then, if we can, Simon. Um, okay. Am I supposed to prepare something for this? Well, yeah, it's never mind. No, <laughs> I mean. Yes and no. I mean, it, what we do is we just like to share like films, books, and 
whatever that we think are worth uh, either worth watching or or should be avoided at all costs. So, okay. so I'm. Yes. I think everybody has something in that they absolutely love that they love to share or or something that they hate. You know, whatever it might be. Um, okay. And so let's start with Tim, and then we can come to you if you just give you a bit of time to think. Really. Yes. So I'll go with two. So um, Simon mentioned earlier uh, what sounded like a sort of flirtation with journalism at the start of his career. Uh, so I'm going to have two. The first is um, a piece by Michael Lewis called J School Confidential, which was written as far back as 1993. But uh, spoiler alert is basically uh, journalism is crap. And all journalists, with, with a few notable exceptions, are crap too. Uh, a very prescient and uh, ahead of its time piece. And right. the Michael Lewis who wrote The Big Short and so yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he was originally a Bond salesman at Salmon Brothers and then yeah. developed a second career as a journalist and screenwriter. Uh, but this this piece basically, for anyone that's thinking, hasn't the standard of journalism really fallen off recently? No, no, it's been dreadful for ages. Ah, um, okay, that sounds fun. Yeah. So that's quite a nice one. We'll send the put the link in the show notes. The other one is a film that I, I watched when I was a, a kid uh, and been trying to catch up with ever since and finally just bit the bullet and I, I downloaded it via Amazon and it's called Another Country 1984 yes. uh, all the Guy Brit, Burgess all, exactly yeah. Guy yeah. Burgess biography it's a thinly disguised Guy Burgess uh, biography uh, it's got all the Brit pack at the time in it people like Rupert Everett and Colin Firth yeah. it's, a, it's a pleasure to watch it's I, I basically, saw that when it came out I remember as a university went to see that that was what I imagined university would be like, but unfortunately, Southampton, the, the punting wasn't up to scratch. It, to it, 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 would, it, would have, it would have been like that if you'd gone to Cambridge, where clearly yeah. pederasty and spying are the major preoccupations of all the graduates. But, but uh, such elegant tailoring. I mean, it's a, it's a trade-off. <laughs> but basically, it's a joy to watch. Um, not a very, It's only, only 90 minutes film, but uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a real pleasure to, to watch, and it should be on TV more often. Uh, and I suppose as, as someone who went to a minor public school and then, then to Oxbridge, you get you get to see an awful lot of the behavior of the English upper classes. It's not necessarily uh, uh, an engaging or uh, uplifting experience. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, um, mine for this week is going to be a, a negative recommendation, uh, one of the rare ones. I was really looking forward to King of Thieves, the film about the Hatton Garden heist, because it's obviously we all know what happened, but I was, I was thinking it's got an all-star cast. How could you possibly get this wrong? But I, I had to stop watching it. It it was just utterly, utterly awful. And I think, it, I don't know where it went wrong, whether it's editing or directing or or what, but it just didn't didn't work at all. So is this a is this a recent film? Or? Yeah, yeah, with Michael Caine. It's got uh, Ray Winston. It's got uh, Michael Gambon. It's, it's got every is, name, uh, every name is, you is, can think of. Is is Rory Stewart in it? <clears throat> I don't think so. No, uh, he might be. But the uh, only thing he bloody well hasn't been in. <laughs> he <laughs> might be, but you know, it's literally got it's got. Uh, it, it, it's got everybody basically or every every sort of name of that that sort of era uh, yeah. of that age is in it and it just didn't work I mean it's just I had to stop watching it because it just I thought well look if you're going to take on a subject like this you've either got to make it really funny and make it tell us something that we don't know because we know that the heist goes ahead and we know that they basically get away with the loo 
Um, you know, just like jokes about someone falling asleep while they were supposed to be on the radio and stuff. It's just, it's maybe that was true, but it just doesn't work. Make them sound like you know, these bumbling old men. It, it just, it just didn't, that did not work. It really did need somebody to take a long, hard look at the script. So perhaps someone else will watch it and find something else in it. But I think the IMDb rating of five says it all. So uh, that, that, that for <laughs> right. me... Avoid. Avoid. So, so Simon, what what have you? What would you recommend or 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 ask well, us to avoid? Well, just listening to um, to you talking about Guy Burgess then in another country. I was thinking one of the books. What I, I uh, research I did from the most recent series of um, Goes to Market was on John Maynard Keynes, who was you know uh, we dedicated an episode to, who was an extraordinary figure, absolutely pivotal to the first half of the twentieth century, and arguably his legacy sort of took us at least up to the nineteen seventies. Um, in economic policy. And of the various biographies I read about him in order to prepare for that show, the most entertaining by far was one called Universal Man, The Seven Lives of John Maynard Keynes by a man called Richard Davenport Hines, a historian who's written a few other books um, of sort of historical biography. Uh, easily the most entertaining sort of economic biography I've ever read. Really, really interesting. Uh, uh, he, he captures Keynes's extraordinarily sort of wide range, his his different the different aspects of his personality. He's he's quite unflinching in investigating Keynes's early sexual dalliances, which were very much of the sort of Guy Burgess variety. And he was a, a um, he was a I don't know that he was entirely a contemporary of Burgess at, at Cambridge, but he was one of the apostles, which was the sort of secret society which they sat around drinking uh, champagne and eating anchovies on toast and, you know, debating moral morality and ethics and so on, which was the sort of foundation of that, the entire sort of Cambridge mythos of the 20th century. So if that sounds like something that you'd like to know the sort of true facts behind, I really recommend that. There's an extremely famous three-volume biography of Keynes by Robert Skidelsky, but that is vast. I mean, that's almost like a history of the 20th century up until his death in 46. And it was right, you know, widely people said he should get the Nobel Prize for his history if such a thing existed for this. But uh, but Universal Man is a much more readable and shorter book and um, and and a really, really interesting investigation into one of the most... Uh, he's, a lot of people, I, I think it was the Marxist historian, the uh, Hobbesbaum, Eric Hobbesbaum, uh, put Keynes in a category. He was the only sort of non-statesman in the category of, of like Lenin and, and Mao and Stalin and Churchill and Hitler, as far as Hobbesbaum was concerned, in terms of the influence he wielded on the on the events of the the first half of the 20th century. So somebody worth knowing about. And the uh, as in terms of uh, watching uh, television, I've just ordered Jack Rosenthal's Patang Yang Kipperbang, oh, <laughs> which days. is a um, yes. We were discussing Rosenthal's legacy on Twitter recently, and somebody else who runs a podcast, Joel and Jason, who run the Rule of Three which is a comedy podcast, um, said, would I like to come on and talk about Rosenthal? He was one of my heroes growing up, a wonderful, very humane, warm, funny writer whose uh, TV plays, standalone TV plays, you know, were every bit as watchable and engaging as any TV, as any British movies being made at that time. In, in my mind, you know, they, they sort of stand um, uh, alongside the Ealing comedies, that sort of thing, I think, in terms of, you know, the British legacy of, uh, of, of screenplays. He's just a genius writer of family dynamics and the, the anxieties of childhood and first love and all that kind of stuff. And that's a particularly fine example. So I recommend that. I think it's available for about a fiver on Amazon, Patang Yang Kipperbang. Um, and if you're taken by it, you can also buy box sets of Rosenthal's 
work at the BBC and at ITV where you get about five plays for about 12 quid. But that sadly, that one wasn't one of them. But they're pretty much all works of genius. That was where I first learned about the knowledge, funnily enough, which you mentioned earlier, uh, his play about taxi drivers accumulating the knowledge in order to get their hackney carriage license was uh, was a, a, a masterwork of that era as well. Really, really lovely, warm human stuff. And um, I recommend any one of those. There's some, breaking, there's some breaking news, Paul. Uh, Patang Yang Kipabang has now stood, thrown his hat in the ring. He's the MP3 Surrey. Uh, Patang <laughs> Kipabang now joining, joining the fight. It's now brings up to 362, uh, which is actually probably more Conservative MPs than actually exist in the uh, Conservative Party at the moment. Brilliant. Fantastic. He sounds a bit more like Golay Biscuit Barrel, doesn't it? <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, look, Simon, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you've got a Twitter handle if people want to follow you. What What is your Twitter handle just for people? I'm on so people... the Simon Evans, which is, uh, I now feel rather jarring when I started in 2009 and had about 15 followers. You know, that was a kind of tongue-in-cheek reference, but now I've got about 30,000 and it sounds just, that's just enough for it to sound genuinely arrogant. But anyway, that's what it is, the Simon Evans. Excellent. Well, we'll put links to that in the show notes. Fingers crossed for the sixth series of Simon Evans Goes to Market. Thank you uh, very much. And break a leg at Edinburgh. I hope to see thanks, you there. Thank you. Thanks for talking. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. And thanks for everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim. Have a fantastic week. And we'll speak to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.